Keep in touch with the Wolf Connection podcast on our Instagram handle at the Wolf Connection pod or email us your questions, comments, and guest ideas to podcast at wolfconnection.org. Thank you for your support and howls to you all. Welcome to the Wolf Connection podcast. I'm your host, John Calvin. All right, so we're fresh off the Yellowstone Wolf Summit and Stephen and I, we've been trying to get this individual on for a little, little while, though she is, to be fair, pretty much everywhere across the world, uh, teaching, giving speeches. Uh, we met her uh, first in Aspen when we did our Living with Wolves, coexistence uh, with wolves with uh, Aspen Environmental uh, Center there. Uh, we saw her again at the Yellowstone Wolf Summit, and now we have her here on the podcast. She's a professor of environmental studies for over 20, or around 25 years. She's a faculty in ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Colorado Boulder, master instructor, Yellowstone Institute, a board member and senior science advisor for the Rocky Mountain Wolf Project. She is Joanna Lambert. Joanna, it's uh, great to see you again. It was good to see you in person twice now. How's everything going with you? Well, hi, you guys. Hi, John. Hi, hi Steve. Uh, it's great to be here. I'm glad we were able to coalesce all at the same time at the same place. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's not easy in this in this busy world that we, we live in, but it's good to see you. Yeah. It's great to be here. Thank you. Of course. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, anybody who's done any research on you and noticed, uh, I was just looking through the pamphlet at the summit and you do a lot of work with uh, primates uh, in Africa. You've been in Africa for the most part, working with wolves in the Rocky Mountains. Those have really been your two mm -hmm. key focuses at this point. Just give everyone a little bit of background because I didn't know this about you, that you uh, you were born in England, I think, and you, uh, you immigrated over here to the United States. Just give everyone a, an idea of that background of your life and what it was like to move here and then really to get into your scientific background, your scientific studies of working with animals and doing that research. Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, so yes, I'm an immigrant, uh, moved over when I was young. My parents came over for uh, the same reasons that, that many folks, you know, emigrate to the United States. They wanted a piece of the American dream, right? So uh, moved over to Chicago, of all places. Um, I do, I recall my grandparents having concern about us getting gunned down, and I'm not kidding, gunned down uh, in the streets of Chicago by um, gangsters. That was very much a prevalent uh, imagery in in England in, in the 70s. Um, so I moved from one big city to another. I uh, born and raised in Oxford, England, uh, moved over to Chicago. And, you know, people have asked me, you know, where, how did you end up becoming a wildlife person, an animal behavior person? And I, I, I sort of, I, I, sort of bogged down because I don't have a, a great story. I don't, um, I, you know, it, it was nothing that my parents gave me. Mm. Uh, my parents, I, I didn't, I wasn't around people that loved animals and wildlife. I was not introduced to anything of the natural world. I was just a little kid that loved seeking out things that were wild and alive. And I did that, you know, growing up in cities. And so I, you know, this involved, you know, once I came over to the States, I mean, observing even cottontail rabbits that make a living in urban and semi-urban areas, you know, tree squirrels, various birds. My entree into the world of wildlife was birds. And I do think that for many people, 
Um, birds is, you know, are a great way of, of learning about a whole different world other than Homo sapien. And so when I was young, I, uh, I just fell in love with all things uh, you know, avian. Um, I did somehow get my hands on a book called Birds of Prey. And from there, I uh, decided to, to create my own Birds of Prey club, uh, <laughs> which included exactly one member, which was myself. And so what I did as a young girl was study in books, the behavior of Birds of Prey. I memorized their Latin names. Um, you know, it, it was just something that I did. But, you know, I, I, I don't know where it comes from. And it, and it speaks to the question, I think, of that endemic, you know, sort of love of wildlife that some people just seem to have more than others. You know, I, it's, I think inherently we are all, every single one of us are dialed in and wired in sort of neurophysiologically to the to the world of the wire of the wild but then there are a few individuals that may sort of tap into that more than others so there is absolutely an inborn piece of this and as i grew up in kind of an urban world it was always animals it was animals that i drew it was animals that i thought about now in the world that I grew up in, in the family that I grew up in, it never occurred to me, and I never even knew, for that matter, that you could make a living yeah. doing it, you know? And so, and, you know, that I could make a living studying animals, it, it, it actually, I didn't really know about it until after high school. Um, and it was in college that I started taking, very seriously, taking courses in zoology, and, you know, doing everything that I could to get into the world of wildlife and animals. I, I worked in, I volunteered for every lab. I volunteered for every project hmm. that I could. I was the kid on Christmas Day coming in, you know, to oversee the, the sloth colony in, you know, the Department of Zoology. I was the kid that was coming in on Thanksgiving to do this reproductive cycling study on a, on a little rodent from Chile called Phyllotus darwini. So I, you know, I had, I was scrappy. And as a consequence, at the end of my undergrad, I, I had a professor approach me and say, you know, Lambert, you've paid your dues, man. <laughs> yeah. And I'm looking for a field tech uh, to go to Equatorial Africa. Would you be interested? And to say that I was interested was, a, is, you know, sort of an under, understatement. I, um, you know, probably almost passed out with delight and it, it just, it, you know, just ecstasy of the thought of going to Africa, which is something that I had always wanted to do. And sure enough, I went and it not only and where I went was to this uh, remarkable forest that I have continued to work in for subsequent 33 years. And this is a forest that is at the border of the Democratic Republic of Congo and Western Uganda. It's a high altitude rainforest that has the 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 uh, the most biomass of primates anywhere on Earth. So it's an extraordinary place to land. It's incredibly biodiverse, and um, you know I had done some field work as an undergrad, some rodent work, some rabbit work. Um, 
but man, getting boots on the ground field experience in that forest, you know, dodging forest elephants and, you know, forest cobra and, you know, running after unhabituated chimpanzees as a first experience um, was mind blowing. And I just knew I needed more. So the, the sort of the rest is history, I guess. I, I um, had that taste of what it could be like, you know, it was it's hard as hell, you know, I, I had no money. And so everything that I brought with me to Africa, I got, you know, at the Salvation Army, a lot of army surplus stuff, you know, this ancient gear, you know, everything leaked, I lived in a tent. Um, you know, I, I, yeah, everything that could go wrong did go wrong um, with illness and just all kinds of stuff, but I couldn't get enough of it. And so uh, went back and continue to go back um, and and will always, always have a piece of my heart and my soul at that site. I've also worked um, at uh, multiple other sites. As it turns out, I've now uh, studied and observed animals on basically every continent um, and just had an, an extraordinary uh, experience in so doing. And um, I'm just thankful to that individual, a professor named Dan Jibo, who took a chance with me. Um, and so I guess, so I don't have the story of, oh, I met Jane Goodall when I was 10. And that's what everybody wants to hear, right? They want to hear that there was that moment. It, it wasn't like that. I've always, it's animals have always been part of my very, what I always say, the animals and what the wild is just woven into my tissue. It's woven, it's a part of my bodily integument, if you will, um, to, to be with animals. And that's what I do. And I'm old school. The, the way that, I mean, I now integrate genomics and all kinds of lab stuff, but the way that I come to know animals is just boots on the ground. And of course, you're saying you don't have a story, but but it sounds like a, a really interesting one to me. But it, it's still almost simplifying like what you do on stage when you're giving these speeches because you it's not just wildlife behavior or 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 you know the, the basics you're you're integrating nutritional ecology evolution phenotyping it's such a complex network of information and knowledge how like how do you get into things like that which on their own are, are seem like lifelong studies i mean how do you integrate things like that nutritional ecology evolution phenotyping um but it, it seems like a challenge to integrate all of these things so how, how do you go about doing that Thank, yeah, thank you. I appreciate that question. Um, and gosh, it's crazy because you hardly <laughs> ever get these kinds of questions, right? Thank you. Um, it's like a tell-all, um, but I appreciate the question. So, uh, you know, in terms of the training, um, I did go on to get a master's of science and then a PhD. Um, and then I completed two postdoctoral fellowships. And so, you know, there, there was, uh, there were many, many years of just literally just training, right, and education, mm -hmm. doing the work. Um, and, and, and I am grateful for all of that. Um, I mean, what a privilege, right, to be able to do that. Um, you know, I, I did, I, I got my way through school as, as an undergrad. I had my own house cleaning business. So I, I always say I clean toilets to study animals. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I got through undergrad. 
but then by the time you get to um, you know graduate school, there are things like fellowships and teaching assistantships. So I I had my training and I got excellent training. Uh, my PhD was at University of Illinois um, Urbana-Champaign. You know, one of the finest research one universities in the country. I did postdoctoral fellowships at University of Florida in zoology, and then UCLA in, in ecophysiology. So um, I got great training, but you know, in, in, in terms of like pulling it all together, I have always been drawn to this question of scale. And what I, and, and as a consequence, I'm described as something called an integrative biologist, which means I am interested in things that are living um, from all scales, from, from the physiological, like the smallest scale to the individual, to the species, to populate, you know, to communities of species up to ecosystems. So I am an integrative kind of thinker and scholar. And you're you're right. I mean, my work now involves individual physiology in terms of hormones and and various and microbiome um, and behavior, all the way up to kind of implications for species interactions in ecosystems. So yeah. Um, it's a, it's kind of a big package. It is what, what I find fascinating just in the first few minutes that we're talking is that you've, you, you've emigrated to the United States from one urban setting to another. And then from that urban setting in Chicago, you have diversified yourself into all of these remote areas across the planet. Was that something that was inside of you the whole time that you want to go to the far reaches of the earth to study these animals and be outside. But meanwhile, studying and a lot of your, your research, what we'll get into is studying these animals in these urban settings and how they're correlating. But first, but firstly, you know, what was that like just to sort of blossom and expand to all these corners of the earth from these urban settings for you? Yeah, no, thank you. That's a, a great question. So, I, I I think there's um, a subset of crazies out there that I'm one of them, I guess. I I can't get far enough away from from people. <laughs> I love humanity. I love humans. I love hanging out, but I as soon as I can, I want to get away from them. So I don't know what that's all about. But yeah, I have always yearned for wild spaces. Um, And I think ultimately, as I mentioned at the outset, I think ultimately all of us have that. You know, I think the longer, the the more urban our world becomes, the more distant we we are from from that yearning. But I do believe it is, it's in us all. Um, And the difference between me and others maybe is that I just went out there and, and just did it. Um, and so I have all, and so up until recently, and we can certainly talk about that because it involves wolves and, and coyotes, um, up until recently, all of my work has been in very, very remote places, um, you know, places where I was worried about whether I could get water, you know, or any kind of medical attention, you know, so, um, but yeah, that's that's sort of that that part of the story, I guess. I mean, just let's go into it because I I, I want to get first year because we'll I'll just sort of jump into research and because we we first met you in Aspen when we were doing the uh, the Living with Wolves the coexistence event that was being held there, which uh, from our point of view, at least for myself, being up there and moderating, which 
was a little bit, <laughs> it was a big task in and of itself because you're all uh, titans of where you were with Matt Yamashita, yourself, Matt Barnes, everybody was really um, focused on on getting their story across and doing a wonderful job at it. How did you feel that that event went off in terms of, you know, did you feel the audience, um, you know, got the gist of what was happening and uh, they understood the information that was being there? Your presentation really kicked it off quite nicely for about 25 minutes before we got to the panel. Um, where Just walk your, walk everybody else through that for you and what the sort of reception you got as that event sort of ended and you were able to talk to some people afterwards. I thought it was a beautiful event. I thought, and I was in love with Aspen that night, quite honestly. That sounds, um, you know, whatever, but but it, it it's absolutely the case. I feel like... Um, the audience was receptive. I do know that there was um, a, div a diverse crowd in there. Overarchingly, my sense was that the folks in there, um, you know, did uh, that I would, you know, they were an already sold audience. You know, there were a lot of wildlife lovers in there. Um, but then, as you know, this whole event was oriented to educating about, you know, all things Canis lupus. And um, I do know that there are a number of folks that don't want wolves in that area and of, of Aspen. And that region indeed is, you know, one of the areas that has been identified by Colorado Parks and Wildlife as being one of the earlier release sites of, in the reintroduction. So I, I, I was fully aware of the diversity of, you know, my audience members, but what I loved about it is that it, and I, you know, and I've, I've done enough big lectures, I guess, over the years to have a feel for some of this. I, my, my over, you know, my gut was telling me that this was an audience that was open to hearing some stuff, you know, and learning and not coming in with a closed mind. Um, I think that, you know, the, uh, Aspen Institute for the Environment did a fantastic job. I think the compilation of people, the the whole sequence of of events was was beautifully done. Um, and I did get, uh, you know, after my lecture, I got a lot of I, I got a lot of feedback over email. People were reaching out to me and thanking me for the lecture, thanking me, um, you know, for the content of my lecture. As you know, because you were there. Um, and I believe that as some parts of, of that evening have already been, um, you know, you guys have already um, had on your podcast series. But um, my talk was not sort of what is a wolf kind of thing. It was more big picture. And as you know, it started, you know, 800,000 years ago with the history of, of when and where wolves evolved and the timing of, of when humans first ran into wolves in Eurasia about 60,000 years ago. So, you know, not, I, I, I was endeavoring to, to make it as non-threatening and big picture as possible. And ultimately, you know, concluded with the significance of, of the Colorado restoration of, of wolves um, to the Western Slope. But, you know, I, I was very, very, con very consciously trying to situate that within the bigger picture of humans and our interactions with wild animals 
over deeper time. And I, I, I think it kind of, I think it worked <laughs> just based on, you know, feedback that I've, I've had from that. And then it was great to be able to segue from that into the kind of nuts and bolts stuff that you were, you know, fielding um, in that panel, you know, re representatives from Colorado Parks and Wildlife, uh, representatives from the Rocky Mountain Wolf Project, et cetera. I think that, you know, it was just a nice combination. Yeah, your your content is is like you said, it's so it's so big picture. It could be presented in many different communities and events or, or I mean, what do you what do you want the outcome to be or or what do you desire the impact of the of the type of broad scope information that you share to be specifically in the context of an event like the one in Aspen and the summit we just went to, which is so very specifically about wolves. What's, what's the, what's the desired impact? Yeah. Good question. Tough question. I think, um, I guess my goal as an educator, you know, so I think of myself as a field biologist and researcher first and foremost, but, you know, probably ultimately maybe my greatest impact will be as an educator. I realize that I've taught, you know, over 10,000 students wow. and I give lots of lectures. And I think my goal pedagogically, as it turns out, I, I didn't set out consciously to do this, but my goal pedagogically is to you know, ask my, you know, my audience or my students or whomever to kind of reflect on not only the exigencies and the moments and the urgency of this moment in time, but also where we've come from, you know, and where, because this can give us such insight into where we may be going. And so I always challenge folks to, 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 to pull themselves out of, of the, of the current moment um, to, to kind of, you know, investigate other ways of thinking, because I really feel like right now we are at, as you guys both know so well, because we're all living through this time together, we are like, we're scared, man. <laughs> I feel it, you know. I I my my students come into the you know, into the classroom. I've got, you know, people reaching out to me, and we are living in a time of extraordinary loss, of extraordinary change. Yeah. And we can become paralyzed by that, right? And especially if we're stuck in the moment of all we can see is that loss and that and that crisis. And so by asking my students or my audience members in talks like I gave at, at in Aspen and you know in, in Gardner, I'm I'm asking folks to reflect on the bigger picture of who we are on planet earth because i think in so doing that that helps to calm that fear a bit and helps to remind us that we do have a history of interacting with wild things and we can continue to have that history if we do a little work on our mm. end and I really, and so it provides students and audience members and class participants a way of thinking, okay, I got this. This is what I might be able to do. And that is, I think, you know, the, the, maybe the greatest gift that we can give each other is to 
you know, remind ourselves to take a deep breath, to reflect on the, on, you know, to pull the lens out a bit and to overcome that fear so that we can start to make a difference. And so that's, you know, that's all. Yeah, that's, it. <laughs> that's all I'm trying <laughs> that's to it. it's pretty sim- It's pretty simple. <laughs> um, you know, and again, it wasn't none of this, you know, I don't even think about this stuff. I like until I get questions like this. I just go out there and try to just convey what I've learned over the years, because I guess, in, you know, in my own life, I've had to I've I've, all, I've had a motto of always do the things that scare you the most, you know, and and always confront that fear head on. So I know a lot about fear and I know a lot about being scared and I can and I know we're living in a world where there's a lot of fear. And I feel that, you know, with with wolves, when people have you know, and maybe this is what people are picking up on. I, because I have known fear, because I'm honest about it, I know that people are scared, you know? It's like, wait a minute, we have we got rid of those things, you know? And now you're gonna say, now you're telling us we gotta bring them back? And uh, a huge part of that, vast majority of that is that, you know, people just don't un- know they've, forgotten and when you don't when you've forgotten and you don't know about a thing you become you know fear can enter into that space and so I guess I see that as a part of of what I do is trying to overcome all of that I just want to I this may be completely out of left field but I'm just going to try it because it came into my brain here whenever we speak to and I'm sure you've spoken with obviously members of the Rocky Mountain Wolf Project and who are trying to share wolves in a different light in terms of stories and and sharing about their pack dynamics and how they're a family and that wolves have taught us tens of thousands of years ago how to really be the species that we are. Do you find that your work and your research and some of your presentation, because you have that in there, we have been co-evolving with this specific species for a very, very long time. Do you mm-hmm. feel that there that is a way to enter into those conversations, even though it is educational um, and can be perceived as sort of highbrow, but you maybe can do, you you can put it in a place where people can understand it, and that they say, "Oh, so we have known what what it's like to be with in and around this species in particular." Why can't we do it again? Or where did we lose our way? Do you ever find those conversations coming up um, in any of your classes and things? I do, John. Um, but as you know, as you noted, you can't go there right off right. the bat. Right? And it and it really um, it really requires some sensitivity and insight into whom you're speaking with, of course right if you've got someone that is you know n- not feeling good about you know like whatever you know in the case of the Yellowstone reintroduction something that the you know the federal government is is doing or in the case of the Colorado reintroduction you know what it feels like is it's the front range telling us what to do right if you're if you're talking to someone you know that has those concerns you know, going right to that that moment uh, or that you know discussion about what wolves can teach us, or how, you know the deep 
you know, long history that we have shared with wolves in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, and that probably won't work, right? You need to absolutely build trust um, in those settings and, you know, and, and mostly just listen, right? Quite, quite honestly. Um, and and even, even with those folks that might not have those concerns and are, you know, right, you know, upfront about how in support they are of reintroduction or how much they, they love wolves, you know, even those folks might not have been thinking about that in a deeper kind of evolutionary historical way. You know, um, I, and and so it and it's and it's a it's a careful story, right? Like in the sense of you can't just launch right into it and just say it, you know. Like as you saw with the the talks that you've now um, seen me give, there you kind of have to unfold pieces of archaeology, some of the genetics, some of the animal behavior, and then you have to situate, you know, well, where were humans thirty five years thirty five thousand years ago, right? And then you have to kind of lay out, well, what is you know um, cooperative hunting, you know, and well, what species have cooperative hunting? Well gray wolves do and and we know that humans historically did and then you have to kind of carefully unfold what co a cooperative breeding system is that you know wolves will in a cooperative way you know it, as a pack rear offspring just like humans do there's no individual human that can just by themselves rear their rear their child mothers need help they have aunties or or sisters or mothers that are helping and uh, you know and so you you kind of need to to build out that all of those pieces of of the evidence genetic behavioral paleontological archaeological now having said that as you noted, I do teach uh, field seminars for Yellowstone at, at Yellowstone Park, where I where I work and where I am engaged in research. And man, <laughs> you don't you got a sold audience, first of all. Um, but like you know, when I when I take class participants and and sit in, you know with a scope on like the Junction Butte, you know den where there are you know pack members coming in provisioning the puppies and they're watching the puppies play and they're seeing you know like babysitting puppy you know in adults that are babysitting and they're seeing all of that those observations just come naturally you know like oh wow Look at that puppy, you know, it, that reminds me of my dog. And hey, that reminds me of the time I had to be you when you were growing up, you know, right. so those like so showing and that's the beauty of being able to show animals in the wild. And that's the beauty of Yellowstone, because there's literally no better place on planet Earth to show people wolves. But those kinds of observations you know, at captive facilities, and as you know, uh, there's some beautiful ones in Colorado and throughout the Rocky Mountain West, where those kinds of behaviors can be observed close hand, and people will arrive at those conclusions on their own. So it's it's really variable. You know, it depends on the setting um, that you're in. Mm -hmm. 
What, sure. what do you conf- what do you consider your focus when it comes to wolves? I mean, you've of course studied so many different species, but what have you really been focused on specifically around this species? Evolution, diet, behavior, of all of it, of course, to some degree. But how do you dial in your efforts around this species since there there is so much ground to cover, and and no one person can of course get to all of it. Yeah, um, and that, that I should give a warning first of all i've been drinking coffee second of all um i'm a academic and so academics there's nothing more than they like talking about than their own work because no one ever asks them typically so i'm going to try and make this um as short as possible but um just big uh, you know just the the shorthand version of that is i am as as we have shifted and bear with me sure I'll, I'll get directly to your question. As we have shifted from a rural planet to an urban planet, where there are more humans living in urban and semi-urban and peri-urban landscapes than there are in rural or wild landscapes, wildlife has, has had to kind of keep a pace, right? They're trying to figure out how to do that as well, you know, because we've transformed those landscapes. And, you know, so basically wildlife have had to kind of keep up, right? And some of those wild species don't keep up, as we know, which is why we're in the midst of the sixth extinction, you know, the biodiversity crisis. Other species are keeping up. And as as um, and and one of those species is coyote. Right. In fact, there are some species that do better um, in areas where there are landscapes of humans than others. And 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 coyotes have increasingly you know, just their range has, um, you know, expanded and they're in, they're in every major city and in the United States, you know, and contiguous United States. So I've been, that is a big part of my current research right now is thinking about how an, wild animals adapt to human dominated landscapes. And this is the landscape that wolves are trying to make a living in too. Right. Clearly, they're not running around in Denver like coyotes are, but they are having to navigate these mosaic landscapes in the Intermountain West. Right. Where there are, you know, human impacted landscapes where there are, you know, there's ranches, they're working landscapes. So, you know, there may be ranches, there may be various, you know, smaller um, outfits, you know, farms and farmettes. And, you know, they are in a position where they need to to figure out how to make a living in those landscapes. So one thing that has been popping up around the world is that animals in these human dominated landscapes that are doing okay, there tends to be a certain set of of, kind of, I don't know, attributes or, or you know, biological features or behaviors that are popping up. And one of them is boldness. Mm. And so what we're seeing is that around the world, whether it's Mumbai or, you know, uh, wherever, you know, um, that that the animals that are doing better tend to be bolder individuals. So what I am looking at in both coyotes and in wolves, two very different circumstances, right? But still two very closely related canids trying to make a living in human dominated landscapes. I am looking at various, various, you know, genetic markers, endocrine markers, et cetera, but also boldness. Hmm. And you can measure boldness in various ways, 
um, you know, and, and this will be behaviorally and including some experiments that um, where novel objects are placed into a landscape and animals are kind of videoed as they approach that novel object and, you know, measuring whether they're shy or bold as they approach that novel object is part of a part of that experiment. And so the idea there is that is getting at hypotheses that might predict that the wolves that are more likely to enter into working landscapes and potentially enter into, you know, a rancher's holdings and take a head of cattle might be those individuals that are that are you know more maxed out on that boldness spectrum. Um, and then likewise with coyotes, is it the coyotes that are ending up in places like Denver or you know wherever? Um, are they more on the end, uh, you know, the uh, spectrum of boldness than they are shyness? And so this ultimately gets at the question of are we inadvertently in changing all these landscapes in the way that we're doing, are we inadvertently selecting for bolder species? Mm -hmm. And are there any signals of evolution? Like, is this an evolutionary thing or is this just a learned thing? And so that is what I'm doing at different sites throughout the West, including Colorado and uh, Yellowstone National Park, and then even outside of Yellowstone National Park in Paradise Valley, and then eventually in places like Eastern Oregon, et cetera. Wow. I, I'm not quite there yet. It's still developed. Have you ever read Kara Cassidy's study about um, toxoplasmosis? <laughs> yeah. Oh, Kara's work is fantastic. Um, I, I can't say enough um, great things about Kira as a scientist, she's awesome. And yes, yeah. I'm very, very aware of that wow. um, study. And, to you know, toxoplasmosis is very infectious. And as you know, I, I know you know, with that leading question, <laughs> uh, that, that toxo can result in bolder animals, hmm. right? right? And and in fact, we also know that humans can get tox yeah, toxoplasmosis and, you know, all these um you know, CEOs and corporate executive types are, are more likely to be carrying it <laughs> really? than, than others, which is kind of crazy to think about, you know. But um, yeah, that does add into the the whole equation of, you know, how are, you know, cir current circumstances even influencing, you know, things like parasite transmission, pathogen transmission that can then feed back in, kind of, um, you know, reinforcing some of these bold behaviors in the first place. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. yeah, it's this This is all extremely fascinating and interconnected and such a, you're right, Joanne, it's complicated in a way that uh, until you hear it, you go, okay, wow, there is a lot of different factors into this one thing. With all of that yeah. being said, because between the extinction crisis, between the urban settings that were pushing on this wildlife. When you look at the Colorado reintroduction from your perspective, that is now full bore, everything's approved. We spoke with Matt Yamashita, the plan is approved, everything's ready to go. Where is your optimistic level at in terms of the way the landscape is ready the people are ready, yep. the city's ready. Where does, where does your brain sit on, and also the importance maybe of this corridor being put together 
possibly in the next three to, let's say three to five years to be safe until there's established populations with wolves and and everything like that. I know it's a loaded question, a lot of things in there, but just the idea of everything that you've laid out so far in our, in our discussion, how important this reintroduction is now that it's finally moving forward. Yeah. And just to clarify, John, when you said corridor, did you mean that latitudinal corridor between Mexican gray wolf populations? Correct. Yes. Yes. That's what you mean. Yeah. Because that was absolutely part of the, you know, sort of the, uh, broader vision of this, mm-hmm. right? In the restoration right. of of gray wolves more generally in North America, you know, kind of g- getting that latitudinal distribution back like like where it was. And um and, and again, you know, just for the sake of transparency, um, you know, I have been, I am one of, you know, five um you know, sort of advisors, board members right, of the Rocky Mountain board, Wolf yeah. Project, um, uh, along with uh, my extremely talented colleagues, Gary Skiba, Rob Edwards, Courtney Vale, and uh, Matt Barnes. And uh, previous to 2020, that Rocky Mountain Wolf Project was a very, very large coalition of, of incredibly dedicated, um, you know, citizens and legislative types with, you know, that were undertaking a vision that had been put in place by Mike Phillips and and also with the passion and, and drive of Rob Edwards. So I just want to acknowledge all of that, right? And I have been in the thick of this for many, many years. Um, I, and which means um, that my, I just want to be really clear that I, you know, my, my perspective on this is as someone that has been working towards this, right, as, and this has not been part of my day job as a professor and researcher, this has been part of my just, um, you know, being, I, I view myself as a, you know, a, a, an advocate on behalf of wild things everywhere and wildness everywhere that wear. And so this was very much a part of all of that. And I, um, I am very optimistic for a number of reasons. First of all, the science is there. And that is the beauty of all of the incredible work that has been undertaken at Yellowstone National Park since 1995, right? We know that given half a chance that, you know, gray wolves will flourish, right? They are a generalist species. They, you know, they have, un- they have withstood, you know, the Pleistocene epic, you know, they, they are the wolf species or one of a couple, I guess, um, of extant wolf species that survive the Pleistocene epoch in the past, historically and paleontologically, there were many, many more species, but it was gray wolves that came to, you know, sort of dominate the, the Northern hemisphere. So given half a chance, they do fantastically well. So the science is there, we, you know, and we had a number of people on the ground doing that work and, and you've had almost all of those people on your podcast, which is awesome. Um, and then we also had all of uh, like the ecological and biological elements on the ground here in the Western Slope, right? And this is not something that was just the whim of a handful of advocates, right? We know this since 1994 Bennett Report, congressionally mandated evaluation of, you know, the um, 
the quality and distribution of the range and the prey availability for um, for gray wolves. And it was clear that, you know, the Western Slope could manage at least, you know, 750, 800 mm. animals, if not more. Um, you know, the, the, the work that had been going on on the ground in terms of social, um, you know, sociological surveys to evaluate the social carrying capacity was indicating that, you know, all of the, um, all the markers were there, right? And then it, uh, you know, it began to coalesce and it was pretty clear um, that because of the success of U.S. Fish and Wildlife, you know, um, uh, dedication in the Northern Rockies that it wasn't going to happen in the Western Slope via U.S. Fish and Wildlife and um, that another action needed to transpire. And so that's when we, you know, went with a, a, a ballot initiative. In terms of my, uh, uh, my sort of level of optimism, I am very optimistic. I think I, um, you know, the Colorado Parks and Wildlife team is, you know, the, it, all the pieces are there, the commission, um, we've got scientists on the commission, we've got ecologists on the commission, there's a new director, Jeff Davis of CPW, that has a vision of rewilding, you know, lead biologist, Eric O'Dell, Eric Brandell, who did her PhD work here in Yellowstone, so there is the talent and the skill there to make it happen. Now, I don't want to be a Pollyanna, you know, uh, wolves will take cattle. They already have taken mm -hmm. cattle. There will be conflict. There will be, um, you know, a, a, a difficult conversations and difficult decisions that will need to be made. And I am, I, you know, I've been in the trenches of uh, conservation for 35 plus years. I know, I, you know, I know what happens when elephants leave, uh, you know, a forest reserve. I know what happens when tigers leave a forest reserve. I know what happens when a gray wolf leaves a protected area and goes into human dominated landscapes. And so I am not a Pollyanna about this, but what I am optimistic about is that we've got the toolkit non of non-lethal coexistence measures that have been formulated by, you know, folks you know, working for USDA, um, you know, a great piece just came out a couple of weeks ago by Stuart Breck and his colleagues on, this was USDA uh, uh, um, uh, work on robot, using robotics to, you know, offset and deter predation by wolves and other carnivore, carnivores on cattle. Um, and then so we've got the tools, we've got the talent at CPW, we've got the science from the Northern Rockies, and then we've got folks in nonprofits, you know, like Rocky Mountain Wolf Project, like, you know, so many others, Working Circle, um, you know, Defenders of Wildlife, so many folks on the ground talking trying to make a difference, making sure that we're showing up to talk to those individuals whose lives will be impacted much more than, you know, the lives of those folks that are living on the, on, in the front range, yeah. you know, so the costs of this reintroduction are not evenly no. spread, you know, the, the costs and the benefits are, are, um, you know, are, 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 yeah, not evenly spread. And we have to acknowledge the costs while also working towards a vision of making our world um, 
you know, a place that can sustain both wildlife and humans on the same landscape. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I don't, I don't know if you can, um, well, speaking of this, I, I don't know if you can touch on this idea. It, it, it seems at least that Colorado does have a lot of the needs of wolves covered in terms of space in a simplistic sense and, and prey speaking broadly about numbers, but there are a lot more people yeah. in Colorado than in Montana. I could be wrong, but I think there are almost, it's like just short of 6 million people in Colorado and a little more than 1 million yeah. in Montana. So that must be a thought right. in the minds of, of everyone in the advisory group. So what has been the conversation around that fact and how does it change anything when it, when, when you compare it to the Montana reintroductions, which I assume is where the advisory board is pulling a lot of, a lot of in, uh, inspiration at least. Well, keep in mind that most of those individuals, you're you're absolutely right. There are way more people in Colorado than there are in, in Montana mm -hmm. or Idaho or, or wherever. But most of those individuals are in, in, are city, in yeah. the front range. They're in Denver, right. you know, in that whole Colorado Springs. It's that right. corridor, yep. right? The um, I-25 corridor all the way up to, you know, through Fort, Fort Collins. Collins. Yeah. And then it starts petering out up towards yep. Cheyenne. Um, so there's that part of it. And there are a number of conservation biologists, myself included, that, you know, as we think about the way forward on planet Earth and how to sustain animals and humans, you know, our burgeoning population, it's increasingly evident that where most people need to be is in cities. You know, as much as we, don't, you know, folks might want to live not in cities, that's where we got to stay because, to protect some of this wild space. So keep, keep that in mind. That's an important caveat. The other part of it is that keep it, once you sort of take that into account and you look at total density, i.e. the total number of humans per unit area on the Western slope versus in areas in the Northern range, I mean, the Northern Rockies, um, it's about Good, comparable. Okay. Um, so the, um, the area that, you know, we, in terms of protected public lands, state and federal on the Western slope is roughly, you know, sort of 21, 22 million, right. Um, on the Western slope, um, you know, as you know, Rock Yellowstone National Park is 2.2 million. Now the greater Yellowstone ecosystem is vastly larger than just Yellowstone, right? Clearly. And, um, you know, it is, it's, it's a very large and completely contiguous area. Um, so that is a consideration, right? Like when you look at the greater Yellowstone ecosystem in the Northern Rockies relative to the Western slope, the distribution and the patterning of the, con you know, of the contiguousness of the protected area is different. And so that is um, why having, you know, it, there's more of a mosaic on the Western slope of those public lands versus working landscapes, which is why it's so critical that we have boots on the ground, and you know trainings in place and workshops of those folks that are going to incur you know the potential greatest threat of wolves leaving public lands into working landscapes. Um, that's where the science comes in. That's where the um, you know the the state agency comes in. That's where the work of the nonprofits comes right. in. When you say all that, and we because we all three of us just I think we we're a week a week out from being at the Yellowstone Wolf Summit. Did you find those conversations with the groups and the folks that were there that this is something that could be pushed forward, not only in helping the Colorado reintroduction in terms of education, coexistence tools, and manifesting and, and, gain, and garnering funds for those that are going to be living with wolves on the Western Slope, 
but also in other conservation efforts as it comes through because we know grizzly bears are, are coming down the legislative yeah. pike mountain lions any apex predator seems to be sort of on the docket for a lot of these individuals in congress and these state legislators about hunting them or, or lowering their numbers do you feel that there was a coalesce um the gathering that was there seems more in line like we're going to work together and we're going to educate and push these things forward seeing that Colorado is working as well as it is. Did you get that vibe from, yeah. from when we left there? You know, that's, that's a good question, John. Um, and there was, you know, largely that was a group of, of wolf advocates, right? right? It was not so much a science conference, right? It was a lot of folks that are in, and also folks that are engaged in litigation and, you know, above, above and beyond just advocacy. But um you know, and moreover, there was just a breadth of topics that were covered. Um, you know, in terms of the Wolf Ranch, uh, Colorado, I think there were really there was my sort of big talk at, 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 on day one, and then you know one other that was given, and then it came up quite a bit in the panel discussion right in the end. Um, and there are varying perspectives, as 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 you heard there um there were critiques of the way that the restoration you know the whole reintroduction um sort of initiative that rocky mountain wolf project initiative was formulated um what i would respond how i would respond to that is um a we got the job done and b you know it's 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 easy to look back with hindsight and and critique especially if you weren't part of the team that was putting together the uh, the the project itself, and the important thing about you know um, you know issues and and critiques about a project is that you learn from those, right? And it becomes an adaptive sort of um, you know adaptive uh, hypothesis testing. Meaning next time around, you know when when this is done. Um, you know, those those concerns will be addressed. Now, to your question about whether this could be done elsewhere, I absolutely believe that this could, it, you know, and in fact, I've had colleagues that have reached out to me and asked this, you know, that this can serve as a template, a model for, um, for things that can get to, you know, making things happen at the state level. <clears throat> I do want to um, kind of, I clarify that the reason why what we did in Colorado was so sort of remarkable is that this was the first time that this has occurred with an endangered species, a species that's on the federal registry of endangered species. I, I, I bring that up because there are other actions at the state level and at the local level that have taken place. You guys know from California, mm, right. right? So there are other initiatives that, you know, and that are voted on by citizens and by activists at every level of local to state about the wildlife in those states. What distinguishes what we did here is, and, and I should clarify that those kinds of, of actions are on species that are not on the federal registry. Why this is different is because at the time of going to the general election in November 2020, 
gray wolves were on the endangered species list and they were they were removed as you know right. the following january for a 10 month period they are now back on so this action is taking place with an endangered species and one that is conspicuous and charismatic and has been on the list since 1974 and so that is why this this is special and because it's the first time a species is being reintroduced not by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife or by NOAA, which which um, deals with marine and coastal mm. species, right? So, um, so that's why this is special. And I, you know, again, as someone that has been doing this for years and seen how, you know, how things, how much work can go into something that never actually transpires. And then having to carry that weight of something that failed for someone like me, when that vote went in and when the wolf plan was approved in May and like to me, not only does this represent another tool in the toolkit of our conservation action plans that could serve as a model to other states, to me, this gives such a source of like agency and hope to an individual, right? That we can't, we are not at the whim of, oh, maybe some politician might consider lobbying for X, no, 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 right? This is something that we can take, you know, into our own hands and, and, and make happen. And in a world, you know, full circle back to where I started, you know, in a world where people are despairing of the biodiversity crisis and try and feeling paralyzed and scared, having a piece of hope, you know, like, man, maybe we can get this done. You know, like that to me is like added value, you know, not only, and yeah, again, you know, I, I, I was transparent about the fact that I was part of trying to get this, to make this happen. So, you know, I was on the, I was on the political campaign ads, you know, it was me saying vote yes. So, you know, I, I have to be really forthcoming about the fact that I am biased in this. Um, but I don't, I don't care <laughs> because, you know, wildlife can't do this on their own. And so if we aren't willing to like step up and, you know, take some risks like I did as an academic in the world of advocacy, then, you know, what are you going to do world over? Right. <laughs> My answer to that is right. no. Do you see, I just have a couple more things before we, we, uh, we tap out here. Um, do you see a shift whether it's in the classroom, uh, out giving speeches and talks, out in the field, there is this shift of individuals and groups willing to coexist, to find these, uh, use these practices to work with wildlife as opposed to butt up against it? Or do you see that it's more of a, in other words, that people are starting to understand the ecological crisis or understanding those that are living out in these rural areas that we can coexist, we can live with these predators, these animals and work with them. Yeah, I absolutely. So I have two answers to that. First of all, I think most importantly, I absolutely have talked to folks that are making a living and working landscapes in various ways that are absolutely, you know, everyone's aware of what we're losing. This is not, 
you know, folks said, you know, everyone is, you know, there are fewer animals and there's fewer space, there's less space for those animals to be in. Um, so this is, this is not a surprise to anyone. And, um, and absolutely, I talk to people that are making a living on working landscapes that are like, yeah, you know, they were here first. And, you know, I don't like having them around because I, you know, I've got to think about my family and how I'm going to earn a living, but it's just as much their place as mine. So I'm going to make it work, you know, so I, I very much encountered that attitude. And, um, and so there's that part of it, but I also encounter other attitudes that might be much less favorable, but even amongst those folks, there's an aware, absolutely an awareness of the fact that there's less habitat and less you know, fewer animals. Um, so there's that part. The other part, though, the kind of flip side of that is that a lot of this is happening so bloody quickly that like our heads are spinning, right? Like when I first was in the classroom, you know, decades ago teaching, I wasn't talking about the biodiversity extinction crisis. Conservation biology as a discipline wasn't even a discipline. There wasn't even a journal of conservation <laughs> biology back then. Right. You know, so I so this is, and and the rate of change and what we're losing is so fast that our heads are spinning. And I, you know, wildlife showing up in downtown Mumbai or downtown Denver is a recent phenomenon. You know, so there's there's an so in some ways, a lot of this is like whiplash, like, holy, crap, you know, whoa, wait, a million species are about to go extinct if they haven't already. And oh, my God, I got to figure out how to how to live with large body predators because I don't want the world to you know collapse. This is a new thing. And we're all trying to all trying to figure it out. Yeah, it is. It it. It is, I was thinking of this recently. It is a really scary time. And even if not consciously, it, it feels like it's in the air or it's in the energy of the world, it seems. Everybody seems to know, even if they don't know. Exactly. It, you know what yeah. I mean? But it also seems like with very few mistakes and a few more undesirable changes, we could see a lot more species go extinct. And uh, it's, yeah, it's a really scary time. Um, but I, I, my, my last... Uh, I mean, I have a bunch of questions, but we're gonna we're gonna try to end it in an hour. Um, well, so you visited so many countries, and and you've worked on more than a handful of projects, of course, and all of them, I assume, come with an element of contention, and 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 the issues of social tolerance, because that's kind of you know across the board. What are some clear to you common themes that exist in all of these wildlife issues? Wow. Um, you know, the species are different, the landscapes are different, the languages spoken in the local area are different, the issues are yeah. the same. Yeah. People want me to earn a living. People are worried about their yeah. children. It doesn't matter if you're in Denver or Kigali mm -hmm. or, you know, emigrant Montana. Yeah. People are worried about their future. People are worried about their own health and safety. And that is what we're butting up against, right? And 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 it it and it's it, it's this this intersection of where 
the world of animals that are trying to make a living. Because think about it, it's the same things for animals. They're trying to make a living. They're trying to find enough food to feed their offspring. They're trying to find a mate, whatever. And so it's it's when those two worlds meet that we get something that has been called human wildlife conflict, right? right? And and that's the stuff that's happening so fast that we've got whiplashes, as I had mentioned. But, and that's where we're working. That's where people like myself and so many others are working is right at that intersection of where wildlife is trying to make a living and humans are trying to make a living. How do we make that work? We don't need to worry so much about how people are making a living in downtown Denver, right? Um, we do need to worry about how people are going to make a living in areas around, you know, Aspen or wherever, or around where I work in Uganda or, you know, where I, you know, my, myself and a colleague, Amanda Schranz are going to be working in Nepal. Um, so there's, and, and, and the species are different. I've seen it, you know, like when an elephant is trying to figure out how to make a living, and goes into somebody's, you know, uh, area and in a night takes an entire year's worth of food and potentially kills wow. someone, you know, when, you know, 380,000 people have died from tiger in India alone in the last couple hundred years, the intensity and the rate and, the, you know, it can be different, but the issues are the same. Um, regardless of the species and including species like chimpanzees that I've worked with. Right. That are, you know, that are one thinks of them as being, you know, sort of in a, you know, some, you know, remote forest, you know, far away from people, you know, doing what chimpanzees <laughs> do. But the reality is, is that those remote forests are now islands yeah. and they need just like the bison need to leave northern Yellowstone, just like elephants need to leave Kibali. You know, th- those those chimps need to leave um, their space as well, and the same conflict everywhere. So, working at that and working at that intersection is where we got to be. And as again, I I you know I could talk forever, and I love this stuff, and I just love <laughs> you guys for the questions you're asking me. Um, but I will always always end on optimism. Yeah. I will. I, 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 it's imperative. I tell my students I, in, my, in the first week of my conservation biology course here at University of Colorado Boulder, we spend that first week talking about optimism and what you need to do to meditate on optimism. What, what, what does that look like? And because if we do, if we, you know, it's easy to be pessimistic. Right. Oh, this isn't going to work. Oh, no way. You know, oh, that's not going to work. Oh, we're doomed. Oh, yeah, that's easy. I could wake up every day feeling like that. But it's hard work to remain optimistic. And that is what we got to do. All of this is hard work. But we got ourselves into this pickle. Uh, So we got to, you know, we don't have the luxury of of just just sitting back and letting it happen. Right. We got to we got to get out there. And that's, I guess that's what I see myself doing. Right. I don't know. I'm, I'll do this till I draw my last breath. I think. It seems, that seems like that would be the way you would go. Um, my, my <laughs> final question for you, Joanna is when you hear the word wolf, what's the thing that comes to your mind? Oh, wolf! gosh. Oh, wow. John, that's so hard. Cause now I could talk for an, an, another two hours. Um, 
I think wolf is part of our narrative. It's part, it is now part, not only is it part of my own personal story for X number of years trying to get him back here to Colorado and now, you know, being amongst them in Yellowstone, it is part of our human story. You know, our human story as, you know, we left Africa as a baby species and entered into Eurasia and eventually North America, the species we were running into that continues today, that continues to vex us in one way or another, but also, you know, charm us is wolf. And I would say that wolf is part of every human story that can be told, um, especially in the Northern hemisphere where wolves are, but, you know, wolves also were in lower latitudes, um, you know, historically. And so I guess that's, that's how I would respond to that. Wolf is part of my personal history and is part of our, the narrative of Homo sapiens. Hmm. I love that. Yep. That's terrific. That, that's a first. Yeah, I've, I think that we've heard. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joanna, just tell everybody where they can see your escapades, if possible, where they can look at the work that you're doing with the Lam- what the Lambert Lab is doing. Just give everybody quickly where they can look those things up and, and keep track of all the research you and your awesome students are doing. Yeah, thank you. And I do want to acknowledge, yeah, all my graduate students um, who are remarkable and put up with me as I gallivant around the world and spend because I I leave as soon as soon as I upload my grades, I'm in the my car or in a plane going somewhere. Um, so I do want to acknowledge them. Um, so I would say, you know, I'm I'm pretty I can I can be found pretty readily on the web. Best place to go is probably my website, which is just W. I sound like a I feel like a used car salesman right now, but www.joannalambert.com um, is, is the easiest place to find me. I'm, I'm fairly good at keeping my website up to date. Um, but again, joannalambert.com. I, I, I have my students on there. I've got to, I've got to kind of update that, but my students, I've got descriptions of my research. I've got all my publications, I've got some news stories up there. I've got a lot on there. So, and then I, I, you know, I welcome and encourage your listeners um, to reach out, you know, to me. I'm just Joanna.Lambert at Colorado.edu. Um, and yeah, I'm also, yeah, I'm, 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 I love talking to people. Nice. <laughs> so that's yeah. great. Uh, Joanna, this has been, extremely informative again. Uh, your passion is incredible. And again, you're one of those that we're, we're lucky to have you in the spaces where you are, which is everywhere. So thank you for spending time with Stephen and I for telling everyone about your research and uh, continuing to do the work to help these species, help the wild places and spaces around the globe. We can't thank you enough for, for all that you do. Yeah, thank you. Thank you guys both, Stephen and John. And thank you not only for inviting me, but thank you for doing the good work because all of this needs to be a conversation. And your podcast, I know, is so heavily subscribed to, and I know you're reaching a lot of people. And I and 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 Wolf Connection in general, just the whole philosophy is is 
such an inclusive one and such a healing one. And I, I really appreciate that. So thank you. Thank, awesome. you. thank you, Joanna. Yeah. Come, come visit me in the field sometime. <laughs> You'll see just how, how oh, crazy yeah. I am out to. there. <laughs> the thing is it'll have to be a floating pin because you're never in one place. So we'll have to, we'll have to knock you, you know, drag you down somewhere. All right. Uh, Joanna, thank okay. you so much. Uh, just stick around for just a moment once we sign off, but, uh, how's to everybody out there and Steven, I'll be with you next time. Bye everybody. Bye-bye. Looking for more information about Wolf Connection or the podcast? Please visit our website at wolfconnection.org where you can donate, sponsor a wolf, or become a volunteer.